0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. I have in this show made mention more than once of the fact that ancient Near Eastern names, at least in the period of this show, all bear meaning, much the way that modern Chinese or Native American names are all bestowed upon a child with purpose or blessing. Well, today we get to a point where the people of Israel appear to simply run out of names and decide to have two kings who are brothers with the same name, as well as two patriarchs with the same name, as well as a bunch of generations mixed in who all take extremely similar names, all a bunch of A's and J's, extending not only to the kings, but to the priests and generals as well. I'm going to do my best to not mix them up, having already mixed them up pretty badly in the first draft of this episode, so if I sound a bit repetitive in specifying who exactly I'm talking about, it's because I need that for my own sanity, and possibly it might help you to follow along as well. Anyway, it's going to take all of our attention to follow this succession, so let's back up a bit. Also, I've been fuzzy on dates up to now, just because many Israel dates are extremely controversial and hard to establish, but I'm going to take the Wikipedia dates here just to anchor us a bit. So going back a bit, up in the north, in the kingdom of Israel, we saw Omri kill off the guy who had killed off the previous dynasty. That's the one that traced itself back to Jeroboam and the divided kingdom. This is in 886. Then Omri dies and is followed by his son, wicked King Ahab of Israel, in 875. Meanwhile, down in the south, the extremely long-lived King Asa of Judah dies and is succeeded by Jehoshaphat four years after Ahab of Israel took the throne in 871. Now Ahab dies, and as we saw, the Moabites broke free right as Ahab's son Ahaziah of Israel takes over. Ahaziah of Israel did some deals with Jehoshaphat, indicating the rising prosperity of the era, and he worshipped which led to his death. Now Ahaziah of Israel had no son, so he was succeeded by his brother Jehoram of Israel, who is also called Joram of Israel. Both names mean Yahweh is exalted, but Yehu and Yeh are equivalent forms of the divine name. The near year is now 852, and Jehoshaphat of Judah dies three years later in 849. Now, down in Judah, Jehoshaphat is succeeded by his son Jehoram of Judah, who is also called Joram of Judah. Both names mean Yahweh is exalted, and, oh my goodness, Chronicles will refer to both of the same named kings of north and south by both names and not always make it clear which they're talking about. And so here I'm leaning extremely heavily on people who have spent a lot more time than I trying to sort it all out. To make it worse, Jehoram of Israel was preceded by an Ahaziah, while Jehoram of Judah is succeeded by an Ahaziah. And just two generations down, we're going to have another similar confusion of same-named kings. But before we get there, a word on the two Jehorams. With their two predecessors, we saw that Israel and Judah were drawing close, and things get even closer here, as Jehoram marries Jehoram's sister. Also, just as Moab had broken free from Israel, it's under Jehoram of Judah that Edom breaks free from the southern kingdom. The Judahites sent a military expedition down to convince the Edomites to, you know, maybe not break free but the chariot corps in that campaign was surrounded in a nighttime ambush. In the chaos, the infantry seemed to have thought the king was dead and ran away. Meanwhile, Jehoram of Judah and his chariot nobles were forced to fight their way out of the encirclement, surviving, but ultimately losing the battle and the war. The biblical authors helpfully mention here that the Edomites remained in rebellion until the time of the biblical writing, which of course means the same thing as they remained independent, but at the same time, of course, it carries a very different meaning. National self-determination for its own sake isn't actually a value taught anywhere in the Bible, except where it leads to a wider obedience to God." Anyway, Jehoram of Judah was a terrible king. For starters, he's in the wrong religious faction, and so is his evil wife Athaliah, who comes from the ruling family of Israel. But to make matters worse, he also decides to murder all of his brothers to prevent any competition for the throne. In Apparent Divine Justice, Judah gets pincered following the Edomite Revolt, with the Philistines in the west and the Arabs in the east attacking together to sack Jerusalem, leading to the death of all but one of Jehoram's sons. Following the sack, Jehoram of Judah fell victim to a two-year-long, excruciatingly painful bowel disease. And at the end of it, He departed, and no one missed him, refusing to bury him in the royal tombs because he was pretty much a failure by both Yahwist and secular standards. Jehoram of Israel still ruled in the north, and down in the south the final surviving son of wicked Athaliah and Jehoram of Judah was Ahaziah of Judah whose name is also spelled backwards sometimes, as Jehoahaz, not for any particular reason, just, as far as we can tell, to be confusing. Perhaps it was also trendy. He continued the alliance with Israel, a thing which Scripture condemns because it leads them both into the wrong religious denomination. His mother, Athaliah, gets some shade thrown at her for being the puppet master here, but Ahaziah of Judah dies too quickly for any of it to matter much. The issue is that Jehoram of Israel had been fighting against the Arameans of Damascus yet again, when he'd suffered some sort of battle wound. Being Jehoram of Israel's nephew, Ahaziah of Judah took a trip up north to visit. And this whole thing gets painted in a super-negative tone, but frankly, this is a nephew going up to visit his uncle during a medical emergency. Plus the fact that his uncle is a war hero who was wounded trying to defend God's land, having been so anointed as king by the hand of God. Plus the fact that these are two nations which have had a sometimes rocky history only now managing to draw closer together through kinship, economic openness, and cultural similarities. But none of that matters because both kings worship God in a mistaken fashion. And it should be pointed out that both kings do actually worship Yahweh. In fact, after Asa in Judah and Ahab in Israel— every single king that we're talking about today has the name of the God of Abraham embedded in their names. They're all born into Yahwist culture, and as far as we can tell, they all appropriately patronize the primary Yahwist temples in Jerusalem, Dan, and Bethel. Of course, these last two contain images of God as a cow, So they don't count in God's eyes, but they do count in the eyes of men. And so the religious conflict that follows here is more of a denominational struggle, rather like the Thirty Years' War of Protestants and Catholics in Europe, rather than something like the Crusade of Christians against Muslims. Anyway, the religious conflict I'm talking about is instigated by the prophet Elisha, at least according to the biblical narrative, who apparently lords over a whole cabal of many prophets, and decides that while the king of Israel is wounded, this would be a great time to set up his own rival candidate for the throne. Now, he accomplishes this by grabbing one of his junior prophets and giving him a flask of holy oil. The junior prophet then follows Elisha's orders by going up to Ramoth-Gilead, where the army commanders are hanging out. Then he goes up to Jehu, a good and faithful Yahwist, and dumps oil on his head, shouts really quickly, Thus says the Lord I anoint you king over Israel! Then the prophet literally runs away as fast as he can manage. After this, Jehu is left standing there, oil on his head, while the other commanders ask him what that was all about. And at first it seems that Jehu is just as baffled as them, but pretty quickly decides that it means he's king of Israel now, and also that God has ordered him to slaughter everyone standing in his way. Now the other people in the room decide that, you know, they are big fans of God and also not big fans of getting slaughtered. So they kneel before him, and suddenly he's king. It seems likely that this power grab was done while everyone thought that King Jehoram of Israel was wounded, but once it became clear that he was likely to survive, Jehu rode to the town of Jezreel, where Jehoram of Israel was recuperating, to put a stop to that. The account of Kings really enjoys this whole story and plays it up a lot, but the summary in Chronicles is just as good. Jehu shows up, slaughters everyone he can find, then goes hunting for the people that he couldn't find. And at the end of it, Jehoram of Israel, Ahaziah of Judah, the wicked queen mother Jezebel, A bunch of Ahaziah's relatives and the entire house of Ahab have all been murdered, and some of them have even been torn to pieces and fed to dogs. Then Jehu meets a priest of Yahweh and says, hey, hey, guess what? I'm going to show you a real cool trick if you support me as king. And the priest goes along with it, and they end up surrounding a major worship service for Baal and slaughters everyone inside, rather like burning down a church during the Easter service just to make sure you get as many Christians as possible all at once. Now, theologically, the result of all of this is that the Lord comes to Jehu with some judgment. And that judgment is... To give him a big old pat on the back, saying, Great work. Jehu gets a solid 9 out of 10. The one blemish in his otherwise spotless moral record is that while he has outlawed Baal worship, he has continued to permit the idolatrous Yahwist shrines in Bethel and Dan to continue operating. So he does come in for a spot of criticism on that account for not, you know, destroying a whole bunch of, at this point, pretty old legacy religious sites. Now, one thing of note here is that Jehu was a commander of the Israelite army before becoming king, and he's also the son of Jehoshaphat, but not the son of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. He's just the son of some random Jehoshaphat. So, he is generating a new dynasty, bringing about the downfall of the Omri dynasty. However, it's debated as to whether or not Jehu actually had any blood ties to the Omri dynasty, as we have a single extra-biblical account for him. You see, Shalmaneser of Assyria seems to have cut a deal with Jehu of Israel and considers him depending on exactly how you translate it, either a son of Omri or a son of the people of the land of Omri. Now, there are two things here to help make this more confusing. First is that it's far from uncommon for a nation to be referred to by the founding member of its dynasty. This happens a lot. Not all the time, but a lot. And second is that the word son of has a pretty wide semantic range in these Semitic languages, including sometimes distant descendants or even members of a nation or group. So Jehu could be a son of Omri in the very general sense of having been born into the nation of northern Israel during the rule of the Omride dynasty, or in the only slightly less general sense of having been part of the Omriid government. Or there could have been a family tie, perhaps a wife or a mother who brought him into the wider family of Omri, which would not have been unusual for a highly placed general. Or the Assyrians could have just given him that title in error. Either they simply didn't care enough about Israel to update their name for the place, or maybe Jehu deliberately presented himself to foreign powers as a continuation of the Omri dynasty in order to appear more legitimate. All five of these are possibilities, and without more to support any of them, we can't really decide between them. But fortunately doesn't actually matter for the most part, as the far more important thing is that Shalmanassar both mentioned and depicted Jehu himself on an obelisk which survives to this day. Now, this is the only known artistic representation of any Israelite or Judahite person from the period of the monarchies, though in truth we can't actually say for sure if it's Jehu or or an ambassador representing Jehu. Still, the image is pretty cool, but the important part of it is that Jehu is shown offering submission and gifts to the Assyrian king. Now, we're not explicitly told why. Assyria did not attack Israel during this period, but it probably goes back to the whole reason Jehu was able to rebel against Jehoram of Israel in the first place. Jehoram, you'll remember, had been wounded fighting the Arameans of Damascus, who are at this point probably the most significant nation between Israel and Assyria. And the Arameans haven't stopped attacking Israel just because a new dynasty is on the throne. In fact, the Bible tells us that God allowed the Arameans to take chunk after chunk of Israelite territory, seemingly without any victories to Jehu's name. It was likely in this context, in hopes of either Assyrian protection or of enticing the Assyrians to join in a pincer attack, that Jehu offered submission and tribute to Shalmaneser. Unfortunately, despite the expense and humiliation of Assyrian submission, nothing seems to have come of it. And while the Israelite heartland is doing well economically, that same rising tide is strengthening their enemies as much or more. Another thing we shouldn't forget is that when Jehu of Israel murdered Jehoram of Israel, he also, in the same attack, killed Ahaziah king of Judah as well. Now, it's not clear why he did this, as he doesn't seem to have had any intention of taking the throne in Jerusalem, nor any apparent idea of reuniting the kingdoms, nor is any plan mentioned here to have a Yahwist candidate stand for the throne as part of the plot. And so, into the power vacuum steps Ahaziah's mother, Wicked Queen Athaliah, daughter of evil king Ahab, and wife of former king Jehoram of Judah. She's actually just lost her brother and son in the same attack, plus a bunch of assorted other family members. So you might think she would take vengeance against the usurper up in Israel now that she's in charge. But no, the only policy decisions we hear about from her, aside from her tolerance of mixed Baal and Yahweh worship, are domestic ones. Specifically, her domestic policy seems to be focused around slaughtering her late husband's extended family so that no one might contest her claim to the throne. Unfortunately, God fails to commend her on her slaughter, oddly enough, and preserves a one-year-old boy from the house of David, young Jehoahash of Judah, who goes into hiding for the next six years. He was preserved by a Yahwist priest, who later becomes a key advisor during Jehoahash's reign. Now once Jehoahash of Judah is seven years old, so after six years in hiding, he's announced to the kingdom, and pretty generally embraced, and wicked queen Athaliah is pretty universally abandoned in favor of a seven-year-old. Now it's pretty clear who's the driving force in these early years, as the priest who had raised Jehoahash is explicitly described as doing things for the king, like getting him a bunch of wives and such. So, naturally, the first action is to clean up the temple, and to exclusively rededicate it to Yahweh worship, after Wicked Queen Athaliah had made it into an ecumenical facility, which affirmed and embraced multiple faith traditions. Now, the year here is around 830. 35 when this gets started, a bit over a century after the temple had been initially constructed. And so based on the sort of things we hear about with other Near Eastern and Mesopotamian temples, it would probably be the normal expected time for a king to start funding a pretty hefty renovation project in any case. And of course, having the Yahwist exclusivists being restored to power would be a great occasion for just such a project. Now, if you know the story of Jehoash of Judah, you know he's probably most famous for how much he actually needed a puppet master to keep him on the straight and narrow. He ruled for some 40 years, and about halfway through, the priest who had raised him passed away. Almost immediately, Jehoash of Judah quits hanging out with priests and starts hanging out with Judahite nobles— and, just as quickly, is convinced of the virtues of ecumenicism, returning worship of Asherah to Judah. When Yahwist exclusivist priests tried to call him out on this new plan, Jehoash of Judah solved the problem by having anyone who spoke out against him stoned to death. And this seems to have seen him pretty well through the rest of his life. Just anybody that you don't like... Stone them to death, then everyone likes you. Problem solved. Externally, the Aramaeans of Damascus were continually assaulting Israel, as we saw, and King Jehu of Israel up north proved wholly unable to stop them. Partway through Jehoash of Judah's reign, Jehu of Israel died and was replaced by his son Jehoahaz of Israel, who returned to the northern tradition of worshiping God in the wrong way, and as a consequence, fared even worse against the Arameans than his father had, having his army bled out and crushed over multiple years of warfare. Seeing the situation up north, Jehoahash of Judah just sent tribute to the Arameans to keep them from attacking over the Jordan River as well. Now, this worked for a number of years, but for some reason, near the end of Jehoash's life, this arrangement broke down and the Arameans attacked. It isn't specifically said anywhere, but from the Chronicles account, we get a strong sense that Jehoash tolerated a great deal of corruption in Judah. And even though the Judahites outnumbered the Arameans, the quality of the Judahite army was so poor that the land was plundered, and Jehoash was wounded in the battle. While he was wounded, a conspiracy arose and finished him off, replacing him with his son Amaziah. Now, it isn't clear what the conspirators' motives were, but Amaziah of Judah taking up the throne at 25 years of age, dealt with it swiftly, slaying the conspirators who had opened up the throne for him. Meanwhile, just a few years earlier, Jehoahaz of Israel passed away and was replaced by Jehoash of Israel, meaning that for three years there was a Jehoash on both the northern and southern thrones. Fortunately, nothing seems to have happened while both of them were alive together. So then we have Amaziah of Judah in the south and Jehoash of Israel in the north, with the year being around 796 BCE. Now, Jehoash of Israel gets a pretty mixed reputation. On most Kings charts, you're going to see him listed as one of the bad Kings, purely because the Book of Kings starts out by telling his whole life in a single paragraph, and pronounces that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, without a whole lot of wiggle room there. But then, after that summary, Kings then tells two stories in a very different narrative tone, suggesting that while whoever went through and wrote the summaries of each king had a different opinion than whoever wrote these two episodes. Because right after, we hear about Jehoash of Israel's unrighteousness, we hear that he rushed to the prophet Elisha just as soon as he heard that the prophet had taken ill. And then he called the prophet his father, and he begged the prophet to share the word of God with him. Now, Elisha replies with a rather cryptic set of instructions, and then finds the king wanting, for rather unclear reasons, then condemns him to mediocrity. Not to get too theological here, but... This story is another example of the innovation of Hebrew scripture against the Near Eastern polytheist thought of the same time. Now, we've seen in our looks at ancient myth and ancient philosophy that it was sort of accepted that the gods were, to a certain degree, capricious. But here, the sometimes arbitrariness of life is explained not from God's caprice, but from Yahweh examining the world and judging its people by standards that are often beyond our understanding. Now, this may seem like an abstract, high-level concept, but it directly impacts how Yahweh worshippers are intended to approach Him. Rather than trying to supplicate God in order to get Him in a good mood, or to avoid putting Him in a bad mood, as was often the case with polytheist rituals, A worshiper is meant to live in harmony with God's laws and commandments, whether or not we understand them, because God alone sees the big picture with how banging some arrows can connect with victory in war. Now, in this one particular case, since we also have the salient points highlighted by the Holy Spirit here, we can also see in retrospect that a king like Jehoash of Israel, who would do just an appropriate amount in a holy ritual, was also likely to do just the appropriate amount in war as well, whereas Elisha and God were hoping he would make the choice to pursue both the ritual and the war with greater vigor. We can't overdo this point here, as there was an element of higher understanding in the pagan gods as well. They did know what was going on, or were presumed to know what was going on in the world, but I think it's important that even though God is a God of passions throughout the Old Testament and throughout Scripture— He's never ruled by those passions in the way that nearly every pagan god is at some point or another. And this reflects a difference in how a Yahwist should see the divine hand in the universe as opposed to a Near Eastern polytheist. Anyway, the geopolitical effect of that theological lesson is that the fearsome Hazazel, king of the Aramaeans in Damascus, finally dies right around the time Elisha dies, and Jehoash of Israel is able to win a few modest victories against his less competent successor in the time remaining before passing on. Meanwhile, in the midst of all this, Amaziah of Judah was ruling in the south, and was for the most part quite happy that his northern neighbor was too busy to look south, since Judah had some enemies of their own to face. Amaziah of Judah, having killed the conspirators who killed his father, now sat stable on his throne, and decided that the best thing he could do to occupy his time was to renew the war against the Edomites. Scripture celebrates the number of Edomites whose lives he ended, and also he captured an area called the Valley of Salt, the south end of the Dead Sea, where, indeed, salt can be harvested and then sold on the market for a good amount of money. But upon returning home from this Edomite expedition, he brought with him the gods of Edom. And as we've seen time and time again, this was extremely common. The Hittites especially were obsessive god-collectors. Taking a nation's divine idol was a way of showing victory over them. But then, these gods would not be ill-treated, that was important. Rather, they would be added into a nation's stockpile of gods, and thereby increase the nation's divine favor. And this is exactly what Amaziah of Judah did with the Edomite god, a fellow known as Kos, He brought the idol up to Jerusalem as a symbol of his victory over the Edomites, and then began to ritually worship it, because that's just being polite. Well, we can already see that Yahweh isn't going to approve of this. And sure enough, a prophet comes by to let Amaziah of Judah know that, hey, hey, by the way, you're going to be destroyed just because he didn't want to be rude to the Edomite god. But Amaziah of Judah didn't need any eternal cursing, since he was apparently cursed with a big mouth all on his own. He picks a fight with Jehoash of Israel, who ends up responding by coming down to Judah, kicking Amaziah's teeth in and plundering Jerusalem, including the sacred items of the temple. The back half of Amaziah's reign does not get discussed, but was apparently a remarkable string of failures. As a popular revolt breaks out, the revolt declares Uzziah of Judah to be king, the son of Amaziah, and then it hunts down Amaziah and kills him. Now, Uzziah of Judah, also called Azariah of Judah, just for fun, is going to rule for like 50 years in total, and then gets succeeded by his son Jotham, which is sort of one being unit. And that tag team is going to see Judah pretty quiet all the way from the year 796 to 735. Instead, Israel is going to see six kings over that same period, and we're just going to blast through them here. All right, so Jehoash of Israel is the father of Jeroboam of Israel, often called Jeroboam II. He was evil, evil, evil. That's Jeroboam was very evil. Oh, and also he saved Israel from military destruction and expanded the borders and even vassalized Damascus, ruling for 41 extremely prosperous years. This was all part of God's plan to bring great deals of prosperity to a terribly evil king and a terribly evil nation with no redeeming qualities. Then he died, and Zechariah took over in Israel. Now, he was also a member of the wrong denomination, and thus directly hell-bound, but he only lived six months after taking the throne, for hell, it seems, was awaiting him rather more directly. He gets murdered by a guy named Shalom who interestingly is the only king of Israel or Judah who doesn't get any sort of evaluation as to whether he did good or did evil in the sight of the Lord, probably because he only lasted one month to be killed in turn by Menahem. Menahem ruled for ten very successful years, campaigning, it seems, all the way to the Euphrates River, which is the biggest Israel has been since the days of Solomon. He gets points taken off for the fact that, following the siege of Tipsha, he ripped open all the pregnant women in the city, which was almost certainly his attempt to emulate the psychological atrocity warfare that's now pretty common among the Assyrians. But he didn't have the staying power to make that really work correctly, so he just looks like a big old jerk. He also sent an absolute ton of money to Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser, who's given the adorable nickname Pull in scripture, which required him to raise taxes super high, but you know, high taxes is better than being overrun by the Assyrians, let me tell you that. Anyway, Menahem died and was followed by Pekahiah, who lives for two years. And all of these guys, as best we can tell, were worshipping at the idolatrous temples in Bethel and Dan, so God hates all of them. Pekahiah's commander was a guy named Pekka, and Pekka decided that since, you know, the two of them had pretty similar names, that he could probably just replace the king, and so Pekka stabbed the king to death and became the king himself. Now, Pekka managed a good 20 years on the throne, so maybe his theory of similar names was pretty sound. But at the end of all of that, Tiglath-Pileser shows up and absolutely wrecks face-up in Israel. Whew, that was a lot of names, and that's where we're going to leave things for today. Now, you probably already know how the story ends now that Assyria has arrived, but we're going to tell that story in a bit more detail next time. We've just shot through 120 years of Israelite and Judahite history, largely because our main source goes pretty quick here as well. And the wider context of the Near East is going to be looked at in more detail when we reset To look at the Assyrian Empire. But for now, we're going to get our first good taste of why exactly anyone should care about the Assyrians at all. So join us next time as things get bad. Like, really, really bad. At least, bad for the victims. It goes pretty well for the Assyrians, generally speaking. Thank you for listening.